0: Welcome to The Business Extra. I'm Mustafa al-Rawi, Assistant Editor-in-Chief at The National here in Abu Dhabi. Today, we're going to be talking about oil and gas, the energy transition, and also what it means for the region here with Majid Jaffa. Before we do that, if you like this show, please do subscribe. If you're on YouTube, ring that bell. Well, as I said, I'm very happy to have with us in the studio, Majid Jaffa, who is the Vice Chairman of Crescent Group and also CEO of Crescent Petroleum. Welcome, Majid. Good to be here. Thank you, Mustafa. So, as I mentioned, you're Bring your perspective on on energy. Uh, you've been in the industry for quite a while. You started off at Shell, and of course now with with Crescent Group that has interests across the Middle East and North Africa. Um, and maybe we can start by taking a step back. Given your vantage point, how do you see the, this so called energy transition with with countries pushing for net zero emissions and what that means for for how we we power our world.
1: So the first thing, uh, as you said, we need to take a step back. I think we're actually in the world's first global energy crisis at the moment. Across the entire world and all forms of energy, and that's never happened before. First of all, energy is the lifeblood of the economy. And that's often said, but it's a little bit like health in a human being. You forget about it when you have it, and then when you don't have it, then suddenly it's it's a huge crisis. And in, in the case of energy, not having it is like a heart attack for for the economy. The big challenge is how to achieve what's called the energy trilemma, which is affordability and availability as well as sustainability. And it's like a three-legged stool. If you neglect any one of the three, the stool collapses. And unfortunately now, looking at the world overall, we're actually failing on all three. So we're having, Massive price spikes in, in energy prices. Uh, we're having blackouts and risk of blackouts going into this winter in Europe, certainly, but even in some other countries in the developing uh, world. And on the sustainability, we're failing because as a result of the of the price spikes, there's more burning of coal. And the IEA just yesterday put out that the biggest challenge for climate change is dealing with coal, and especially coal use in the developing world The developing world looks at richer countries who are now burning coal again, turning on their coal plants, having lectured the developing world not to do that. So we're actually failing across all three. And yes, there are short term issues, such as coming out of COVID and supply chain issues, such as China burning a lot more gas last year, such as US shale not growing the way it used to, and of course the Ukraine war. But fundamentally, more structurally behind all of that is a failure to invest. There's a deficit in investment of about two to $300 billion annually just in the oil and gas sector. And there's a lack of a sufficient investment in other sectors like nuclear uh, and also re- renewables. And unfortunately, we've seen, you know, with, with the net zero agenda, uh, a lot of Western countries, developed countries, just put a target out there, you know, net zero in 2050 or, or whenever, with no plan. Whereas by contrast, the UAE actually had an energy plan for 2050, even before its net zero uh, plan for, for 2050 or target for 2050. And as it's been said, you know, a, a goal without a plan is is just a, a wish or, or or a dream. And that's what's been lacking. You know, we're not going to get there just by having a net zero target and then the demand keeps growing, and there's actually been a starving of investment in the supply. I mean, things have
0: accelerated really fast on the net zero front from 2015 from the Paris climate deal. And, and, and we seem to have got momentum, not overnight, but it came really fast. So you had a combination of, I guess, declining investment in, in more traditional markets um, for a number of reasons. And then we had the climate agenda which kind of gave more, more power to that idea that we didn't need to focus on hydrocarbons. But as you said, I think the, the most fascinating aspect of this is what happened to shale. Because at one point, we had so much supply that oil prices tanked in, in 2015, 2016, um, and people thought they might never recover. And so, you know, we, we had actually a crisis of investment in the Middle East, North Africa region that we kind of weathered and then got through. And now you're seeing a lot of investment towards all kinds of energy, oil and gas, renewables, hydrogen, biomass, you name it, it's kind of exploding here. Yet we're seeing in the, in the US, for example, just this very strange stagnation that I'm not, sh- I'm not sure how they can pull out of, but shale was going to save us in terms of supply. And now, and now I don't really know where it is.
1: So first of all, what happened in the US is extraordinary. Uh, I mean, when I was in Shell twenty years ago, we thought the U.S. would be a market for for gas uh, from the Middle East, and now it's actually been exporting gas to Europe and sometimes even to the, to the Middle East. So it it went from being a big importer to now the world's number one producer of oil and gas, thanks to the shale revolution. Having said that, uh, the world got used to the growth in shale, and it. It had to come to an end, the growth I mean. I don't mean the sector as a whole, it's still producing. The investors in that sector, by and large in the US, a lot of them got burnt chasing just growth. It was a little bit like the dot-com era 20 years ago. And now they're looking for financial returns and cash flows and dividends. And so I don't think you're going to see the same growth. At the same time, demand for energy continues to grow. And there's debate on have we hit peak oil now, is it going to be hit in the next 10 years, 20 years? It's a little bit of a sideshow, that whole debate, because even if demand for oil isn't growing, we lose 4 to 5 million barrels a year from natural decline of the existing fields. And so we need to add a new Saudi Arabia every couple of years, and the investment isn't being made. And unfortunately, you know, with, with the climate agenda, the net zero agenda, Somehow, it got misconstrued that we don't need you know, oil and gas anymore. Nobody actually said that. But the message went to the financial markets. You shouldn't be funding this anymore or you don't need to be funding this uh, uh, anymore. And fundamentally, climate change is about emissions, not starving energy. It's about trying to achieve the energy you need with reducing emissions. And to... to just starve the supply while the demand keeps growing doesn't make sense because ultimately climate change is demand-driven. Uh, uh, I mean, that would be like trying to deal with obesity, you know, as a, as a health problem by doing nothing about people's diets and just starving the farmers from the money they need to produce wheat or sugar or, or, or whatever it is. You're not actually going to tackle the problem, and you're going to have what we have now with energy, which is growing energy poverty while demand uh, continues to grow. Turning to this region, we have half the world's oil and gas reserves. We also have huge potential in areas like solar. The UAE has led the way uh, with renewables energy, the lowest cost enabled by AAA credit rating, of course, on Abu Dhabi and the ability to finance, as well as a nuclear uh, project. I think looking at the MENA region overall, we're still only a third of the world's oil production, a sixth of the world's gas production, and yet we have the lowest cost. So going forward for the next few decades, the Middle East is going to play a larger and larger role across all the types of energy. And I think it's apt that we just had COP27 in our region in Egypt, and of course everybody is looking now to COP28 here in the UAE next year. I think the key challenge will be getting the voice of the developing world because the developing world is where this whole challenge is going to be won or lost. It's where the demand is growing, is growth in demand is for energy, because that's where the economic growth is and the population growth is. The developing world, looking now at the rest of the, the developed world, they see all the problems have been caused, in a sense, by some of those actions. So inflation, by printing so much money in developed countries during COVID, The energy crisis, because a lot of investments were starved deliberately by some institutions, financial institutions and governments. And now we see the result, an energy price spike. There was vaccine hoarding in in Western governments during COVID. And so the World Health Organization said COVID is going to take a couple of years longer than it needed to have done uh, because of that. And then on climate change, the developing world says, rightly, we are going to suffer from this issue more, even though we have had much less or even negligible in, in cases like Africa role in creating it. So enough talk about just climate finance or green aid, we now want to talk about loss and damage. The language of reparations is what we saw in Sharm sheik And there was some agreement on a way forward, although concern and reticence from, from many of the, the richer countries about that new dialogue. But ultimately, you know, if you look at, for example, Holland, they're not worried about rising sea levels in the same way as Bangladesh. Holland is below the sea, the whole country is below sea level, but it's a development issue. The countries that don't yet have the economic development are the ones that are going to suffer the most from climate change.
0: And they need the resilience, and they don't necessarily have it while in developed countries, they are building up more resilience to the effects of climate change. I think we've seen extreme weather in particular in the last year whether it's floods in Pakistan or elsewhere the impact of earthquakes and uh, more storms and that's and that's a global situation I think you know the the fact of the matter is is that we we are feeling or recording or observing the effects of climate change mu- much more than we were before and so the 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 story if you like the PR game is is much more intense I mean we mentioned about what governments had done in terms of investment but the noise, the noise against hydrocarbons, if you think about the protesters at the moment, what they're doing is only going to get louder. Um, but there needs to be, as we've seen, because of the, the spike in prices in Europe in particular, which is actually making a lot of people who six months ago or a year ago would have said, climate is the most important thing for me, are now saying, well, actually, the most important thing to me is affordable energy and access to it. So it doesn't actually help the climate fight. So we have to find a measured way of of moving forward. Um, you know, we come back to this region, the message for a year now, I remember for, to the last two ADAPEX, the big oil and gas exhibition has been, don't try and switch off the system without putting a new system in place. And so really, I think the only rational debate, and I and I do mean that, is really where we're thinking short, long, and medium term is happening here. And, and that's why, like you said, it's good that COP28 is happening in the UAE. But you know what, what from your point of view, how do you move forward on investment? What, what, where do you prioritize where you put that money right now?
1: So we as Crescent Petroleum headquartered here in the UAE, and we've celebrated our 50th anniversary. We started at the same time as, as the birth of the nation in the UAE. And back then we were very much domestic producer and oil focused uh, in Sharjah. We've since expanded around the region, including Iraq and Egypt. And we're now 85% natural gas. So there has been that sort of transition within our company. But then we looked at how can we minimize our emissions, our flaring to nearly zero. And then we offset the remainder uh, with carbon credits, UN certified, to support renewable energy in places like China and Mongolia, wind energy to achieve and declare net zero or carbon neutrality across our operations a year ago. And that's something we intend to maintain. So the first message is oil and gas is still going to be needed, but the way we produce it needs to be cleaner. We need to decarbonize it in essence. And also the way we consume it is going to be uh, different. But natural gas replacing dirtier fuels like coal in Asia or in, or in Western countries, the way the UK and the US did, or in our region, uh, liquid fuels. So, for example, the gas we produce by deplace, displacing diesel uh, for power generation in this region avoids more than 5 million to, uh, tons of CO2 emissions annually. That's more than all the Tesla cars on the planet. And that role of gas in the energy transition is important. It's why the EU has recognized gas and nuclear as green transition fuels. And it's great to see just this week, ADNOC announcing a gas subsidiary that's going to be uh, a new IPO, and that recognizes the importance of gas. But as you said, uh, and as Dr. Sultan al Jaber, the UAE climate envoy, uh, has said, uh, it, the transition... It's not about unplugging uh, and, and replugging like we're changing televisions, uh, you know, instantly. If we just look around us, uh, aside from passenger cars, even if all the light vehicles were electric, we still have trucking, shipping, air transportation, and making things is actually the fastest growing demand for uh, oil. Many of the things in the studio are made of oil. Most of the things we relied on during COVID from hand sanitizers, surgical masks, every single vaccine has glycol as a stabilizing agent, which is an oil uh, product. All our smartphones that we used, all our uh, computers, we underappreciate. In fact, all the electric cars are made of oil, all the wind turbines for wind power, all the solar panels all contain oil uh, products. And of course, gas, as we mentioned, is about power generation and feedstock uh, for industry. The other key thing is even as the cost of renewables comes down, uh, the cost of generation, you can't store power from renewables. All the batteries in the world today can't store just a couple of minutes of global electricity uh, demand. And so you need something to back them up when the sun isn't shining or the wind isn't blowing. And that, at the moment, the cleaner forms, as the EU has recognized, are nuclear power and natural gas, which is why they are the cornerstones of the UAE national energy policy for 2050 backing up renewables. So the plan for the UA 2050 is about 40% natural gas, 40% renewables, and then nuclear and, and other forms.
0: I mean, globally, the financial crisis knocked a lot of momentum that was going into renewables when the, when the price of oil was very, very high um, about 15 years ago. And so we kind of maybe lost, lost a bit of, of pace on that. But, but listening to you just now, um, I w- what struck me was when you started out in this business, you didn't have to know any of that, I guess. Um, all the aspects of, of of the environment and 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 sustainability and and efficiency in terms of 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 impact, I've, it feels like it was a simpler industry, oil and gas. It was about can you find it, and can you get enough of it out
1: to get it to the market. I mean, is is that a fair assessment of what it used to be like? Actually, I I, I disagree with that. I think, you know, it the environment may have become an important issue in the public consciousness, but actually for an industry like the oil and gas, it's been, it's been you know, sustainability and, uh, you know, thinking about the wider impact of your operations has been good practice for decades. It was certainly the case when I was in Shell uh, 20 years ago. You know, people planet profits. Uh, it was not something new. Uh, it was well before the sort of more recent net zero agenda that we see uh, across governments. And it's really about d- dealing with the issues of all your stakeholders, the environmental and the social and the governance aspects, uh, and not just your operations. That's part of good corporate citizenship and and sustaining your, your own business. I think it's very important, though, that we address local needs as well, or even primarily. For example, uh, if you just talk about net zero uh, in somewhere like China, you don't get as much reception. If you talk about air quality, then the people in Beijing or Shanghai understand exactly, or indeed in, 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 uh, in Mumbai. Uh, in Iraq, for example, where we have major operations, water is the big issue. And of course, climate change, but if you talk about climate change as an amorphous kind of global issue, it doesn't resonate as much as you talk about rising temperatures and the decline in the rivers. That's not only global climate change, that there are issues like dams upstream in places like Turkey, the draining of the marshes in the the south that the national has reported on, but making it local, making it relevant. If you are in the 7 billion of the 8 billion in the developing world today, and you look at the UN SDGs, they all matter to you. And the, the top few things like health, education, clean water, uh, you know, hunger, poverty, these matter. If you're in somewhere like Sudan or, or Somalia, if you're in San Francisco or Sweden, then maybe the only one that, that matters to you is climate action because the rest of your needs are addressed. But we cannot forget that for the developing uh, countries, all of these issues are important. So you mentioned Iraq, and you
0: mentioned about needs needing to be met. Um, And Iraq is such a conundrum. Uh, I think everybody sees the potential of the population, of the natural resources, but for myriad reasons, political, um, you know, only a few years ago, they were fighting back against ISIS. But now you're seeing uh, issues about, you know, uh, between Baghdad and Erbil, for example, on on oil revenues. But just in general, it feels as if, again, looking from the outside, that um, Iraq's okay when the oil price is high, it manages to cover off most of its dysfunction within the industry. But then we're only a few months or a few years away from another crisis, and we can't seem to get the reforms going. I mean, you've been working there, Crescent's been working there for some time. I mean, what's your view on on, on Iraq in terms of, of oil and gas?
1: So clearly the potential is huge. Iraq has the second highest proven oil uh, reserves in the Middle East, uh, in OPEC after Saudi Arabia, and ultimately could even have higher. Um, it's, it's still vastly underexplored. And huge potential in gas. We've been present now producing for 15 years in the country We've invested over two and a half billion dollars in the oil and gas uh, sector. Our main focus has been in the Kurdistan region and gas. But we also uh, hope to soon sign contracts with the federal government, the bid round five contracts that have been awaiting signature. And we could do similar uh, for the central Iraq and also southern uh, uh, Iraq. The challenges are many. We've been through many challenges over these 15 years, but we're committed to the country over the long term. We're proud to have over 85% local uh, content. I think the problem you mentioned of the federal budget the, is a problem of many um, oil producers, particularly those outside the GCC, including Libya and Algeria and, and others, where the uh, the um, break-even price uh, keeps going up. So the price of oil needed to sustain the national budget keeps going higher each, each time. And the oil price is not going to keep going up. So if you are struggling as a government to pay your salaries and your and your bills, bills and debt service when oil is $70 or $80, then there's a problem. And that challenge is one that is facing Iraq. Uh, the reform agenda comes into play when oil prices are lower and then when it's higher, as you said, it gets postponed. There is some hope with the new government that has been formed of better relations between Baghdad and Erbil, better relations. And they have been generally good uh, in the wider region. Uh, Iraq has been uh, you know, hosting talks even between Saudi Arabia and Iran and in, 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 in Baghdad. But absolutely, the domestic economic reform agenda is uh, necessary, tackling corruption and services. These are the key things that the Iraqi people uh, want to see. Are you optimistic? I think we have to be optimistic. Uh, We have to look at, on the positive side, Iraq came out of uh, decades of war and sanctions, if we look at in two thousand and three, the oil production was less than two million barrels. It's today four and a half million barrels, and with plans to go to six and higher, and that should be possible with the right uh, uh, focus and policies. Uh, and we've we've seen uh, no from no um, international investors, if you like, in the energy space to dozens from the large uh, multinational energy majors to uh, oil and gas independents. And more recently, um, a declared plan for solar projects as well, looking to partner with Masdar from here in the UAE, looking to partner with Total. So that side, the energy side, there's still more investment that's needed in water treatment and infrastructure. uh, And the electricity provision uh, really needs addressing because it is a tragedy that Iraq still doesn't have good electricity provision, and it's holding back the uh, the overall development. So finally, I want to uh, get
0: your perspective for any uh, young professionals out there, maybe graduates looking at their first job or those early in their career and looking at energy right now. Is it still
1: a good industry to go into? Would you recommend it? I think so. We're certainly recruiting uh, smart young people. I think the key uh, messages are uh, it is not some old industry industry uh, of the past, it is the lifeblood of the economy. It's going to continue to be uh, critical going forward. Uh, it is also a high tech industry. I think that's underappreciated. Aside from the, the fact that the whole tech industry relies on energy, increasing amounts of energy uh, for servers and, and, and fulfillment and so on, energy sector itself is high tech. That's how the shale revolution in the US, for example, uh, happened It was technology and entrepreneurship that, that brought it all uh, uh, together. So I think the, the, the promise is there in oil and gas, still for decades to come, but also in, in, uh, in other forms of energy, whether that's in nuclear, wind, solar, and the amount of investment and, and innovation that is going to be needed for the energy transition in areas like carbon capture and storage, the hydrogen economy, uh, and battery technology; these are all very exciting uh, fields and growth fields for any new entrant to the job market.
0: And any advice you'd give them?
1: I think, uh, as I would give any uh, new graduate, uh, don't worry too much about uh, your first job. Uh, get one with a good reputable company where you can uh, learn uh, and uh, and do what you enjoy and and build a passion because. Uh, uh, I think, in 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 some senses, you are building a career, but things have changed so much since you and I started uh, uh, work, in the sense that people change jobs more frequently and are constantly seeking, rightly so, to be learning and adding to their uh, skills. So I think that's uh, you know that's the important thing to bear in mind. Majid Jaffer, thanks
0: so much for being with us. Thank you. Well, that's it for today. Thank you for joining us. All that remains is to thank our production team. See you again next time.